This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. And welcome this week to the morning break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio. If you listened last week, you saw me give a, you listened to me give an overview of education, and, and this week I hopefully I'm going to continue to explore the, with the big think and the thought: What are schools for? As I continue with my guest this week, Roy Nevitt, theatre director. Inspirational educator and founder of the Living Archive. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, welcome again, and the good news is it's Friday, it's break time. And if you're listening live and looking forward to the weekend, of course, it's an unusual, very unusual weekend we're approaching. We're approaching a bank holiday. And whatever this bank holiday means to you, whether it's an opportunity, I think, for many of us to reflect and think about the past and also to think about the things we do. And I think what I'm using this radio show to do in a way is to explore my own teaching. I've, re- I've retired now. And I want to look back at the past and ask, what was I doing all those years? All those 38 or so years of teaching, what was it for and what was the purpose? And to help me explore that this week, I've got a guest. It's someone I know <clears throat> and someone I've worked with and someone who is uh, a really inspirational teacher. And I've called this uh, program uh, The Power of Drama because I, if I try to understand what schools are for, then I think drama is one way I'll approach that. We'll talk about the power of drama and the role of drama in schools. So welcome, Roy Nevitt. Good morning. Pleasure pleasure to be here. (laughs) Well, you're very welcome, Roy. And we've been talking all morning, in a way, up until until we started broadcasting, about some of our shared memories of education. And, And we've looked at the way in which drama performs a role within education. You now, Roy, if I introduce you, I've introduced you under several headings there. I've called you an inspirational teacher, and I know that's true. And I've called you a playwright and also a founder of the Living Archive Project. And I think if I'm right, we're going back to 1984 or thereabouts when you, uh, your wife Maggie, Maggie Nevitt and Roger Kitchen founded the Living Archive. We did indeed. It was, it, it was born out of the work that we were doing at the time. Um, at Stantonbury Campus <clears throat> um, with um, musical documentary theatre on, on a local subject. And um, most archives are, are just collectors. Uh, archivists are collectors of documentary so- um, material of various sorts. But the difference with the Living Archive was um, that we wanted to breathe life into the documents we collected or the transcripts of the interviews that we did, breathe life into them and transmute them into an art form like drama, song, music, visual arts or dance. And that, in a way, I think in our conversation this morning before we started, I realised the importance of the word living. It's not just an archive. It wasn't just just, um, collecting the history documentation it was it was the living aspect indeed it, there were three words in our original name living archive and project project because we needed funds it seemed to imply the need for funds to come in which we managed to get and still do after all these years um, archive because clearly we were collecting local history both from people's memories and from documentation that exists in Um, all kinds of places and living above all because we wanted to embrace all that material, bring it to life and communicate it to audiences who are the people who lived amongst us. So the living aspect uh, and the Milton, the the living archive was based in Milton Keynes and and still is based in Milton Keynes. It's it's still going, isn't it, Roy? It is still going. Um, It was very important at the beginning because Milton Keynes, was built around um, initially four towns and 13 villages and a population of about 40,000 people. But it looked forward to the arrival of about 200,000 people, newcomers from all over the UK and further afield. 
<clears throat> and together they needed to um, belong to a new city. So one of the most important things that a person who worked in drama and theatre could do is infuse life into a community spirit that would be the foundation yeah. of um, the growth of a new city that would have a life and a character and um, an identity. And I, and I know that's something we, we want to get onto later in a way, is about, about the, the power of drama to build institutions like schools and communities. But before we get there, in a way, let's go back uh, to when I first met you, Roy, as a teacher of drama. And, and before that, before I knew you, you started as a teacher of drama and started as a teacher of English and drama was relatively a new subject for you. Yes, well, um, I, sh I should say that um, I first engaged with drama as an audience person, a member of an audience at my school, which was Vandine School Grammar School for Boys. And there just happened to be a brilliant teacher of English there called Brian Stone. Some people may know Brian from um, having been the author of the Penguin Classics on Gawain and the Green Knight and other such um, uh, publications, or they may have known him through the Open University, where he was responsible for producing a number of wonderful plays like Waiting for Godot and producing them on video and then using those videos as the course materials for his students at the Open University. But anyway, Brian was my teacher at Van Dean, and um, he used to put on school plays in a boys' school. Um, and to this day, I will never forget um, the effect those school plays had on me. Henry the Fourth, Part One, yes. Coriolanus, um, The Tempest, Comedy of Errors. There's nothing equivalent to the experience of watching your schoolmates embody great characters like Falstaff or um, Prospero or um, Coriolanus or Volumnia, his mother. Yes. Um, well, I, I remember, uh, we would, uh, again, to share the anecdote I came up with earlier, when I was at school, I went to a big comprehensive school. I went to a big comprehensive school in, um, in Crawley, Newtown. It was Thomas Bennett School. And they put on a production of Cherry Orchard and I played Fears, the old retainer. And I remember the drama teacher there saying to me, you know, he said, this is, this is something you'll never forget. Now, and I know that many teachers provide many things in schools that, pe that people won't forget, but it was absolutely true. The profundity of taking part in that, in that play has stayed with me forever, really, for my whole life. I'm sure that's true. And, I, and I, I've heard my own students tell me that um, over the years. <clears throat> But, you know, it, 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 I mean, drama, the power of drama is not in any way confined to plays or um, the performance of plays or whether you're audience or participa participant in them. It stays with you for life. If you've had a good experience of it when you're young, it can still be incredibly important for life. For example, I'm 83. I'm a retired teacher and theatre practitioner. Um, but even now, I can feel the effect of drama on my life. I mean, I, I lost my wife in February and um, have been dealing with grief in the last six months or so. And it, it struck me as being interesting to watch again the play, the film, Truly Madly Deeply with Juliet Stevenson and Alan Rickman. And I have to say that while I could identify with the character Juliet Stevenson played with her grief and the extremity of it as she revealed it to her psychotherapist, um, the, it, it wasn't her grief that really moved me. Um, she had something extra that I didn't have, which was a kind of rage directed against her husband for leaving her. I didn't have that. Um, but um, what did make tears come to my eyes was when the character played by Michael Maloney, um, who was to be the next man in her life once she got over her grief, um, showed incredible kindness and gentleness and empathy and understanding. And that, that, that 
that demonstration of kindness within the drama just had a deep emotional impact on me. So, I mean, if you can experience emotion that deeply, um, then how much more can you experience it if you're actually participating in the drama? Yes. That's why it's so important to have drama in schools and such a tragedy that drama and music does the same thing with emotions. Um, it's such a tragedy that, that those things could be diminished in their value in current day schooling. Yes, and, and it's, we've talked a little bit earlier about the, the, the school play and the, the way in which when you first came into drama at school, when yes. you were a drama teacher, very much there was the school play. Putting the school play was a well-known, you know, and learning, learning, learning um, in English lessons, extracts from Shakespeare. But there was an, as an aspect to drama in the 1960s that was taking it in different directions in the classroom. We mentioned Dorothy Hathcote. Yes. Um, I, um, I'll just stay for a moment longer with the school play. Go on, um, because um, before we get on to Dorothy Hethcote and, and drama in the, in the classroom, which she was so um, important, uh, uh, an innovator in, um, I'll just say a couple more words about the play. My, my teacher, Brian Stone, not only did these plays that we enjoyed and, and many of my fellow students got involved in, but he, he would take us to Stratford-on-Avon every summer for the summer holidays. And in the course of a summer there, we would see six or seven Shakespeare plays with the greatest of our actors in it. Now, it's not an accident to me, because I see a continuum between the work we were doing in school and the work they're doing on the RSC stage. It's not an accident that um, the boy who played Volumnia in Van Dean's school play of Coriolanus was called David Collings. And in his adulthood, he frequently graced the RSC stage as a great actor in the great parts there. And furthermore, uh, uh, an actor who was in one of the Van Dien school plays playing Juliet in Romeo and Juliet um, just a few years before we were there um, was no less an actor than Paul Schofield. So <laughs> I see, I see this, um, I see this um, connection between um, young people doing drama in the classroom, um, young people doing theatre, say in theatre studies A level, um, and and community people working as amateurs and professional people um, doing as working as professional theatre practitioners. I see this, see us all as um, being in the same world with the same aspirations to achieve excellence and have the best experience possible through the medium of drama. Yes, and, I, and when I think about the work you were doing when I first knew you at, at uh, Stanton Campus School, the, in, in its heyday as a, as a very progressive school, was that it had sort of three aspects to it. It had the community, it had the students, and, and what was happening in the classroom. Because I, I encountered a lot of the work of the Living Archive and, and, the, and the, kind of the way in which drama was infused throughout the, the way we taught in that school. As, as, as part of the, how it happened in the classroom. So there was the classroom, there was the community, and then there was the theatre itself. And those three things came together. Yes, indeed. The, the first person um, who I uh, appointed to join me within the theatre team, it's Luke Abbott, who um, had been trained by Dorothy Hethcote, the person you mentioned earlier. And um, he communicated his skills in bringing drama to life within the classroom to the whole school effectively using the Dorothy Hethcote method. We used to have something called shared time, which was English humanities and so on, um, which was taught over several hours at a time. So there's plenty of time to do drama properly. And um, uh, Luke trained his fellow teachers in shared time to all of them to teach drama so that every student in the school took drama up to CSE um, level. And, um, and such were the skills that were communicated that um, the children love this. I, I was aware of kids running towards their drama lessons. Um, they were so keen on them. The way, the, I'll give you one example of the way um, 
Dorothy Heskett might have worked. I'll give you perhaps two examples, or I'm sure you'll remember some of them because you you were one of those teachers who used drama in this way. But for me, you could be doing something like Irish emigration as a subject, and you get all the kids onto the ship that's about to leave Ireland, and you get them looking over the rail back at Ireland, and you just say something like, I wonder what they were thinking of as as the ship left Ireland and went out to sea. Then you shut up and you listen and you wait. And you might have to wait a slightly uncomfortable length of time. But sooner or later, the kids are going to say whatever's in their heads to say. They've imagined what these emigrants were thinking and what they were leaving behind, the people they loved, the place they loved, the activities they used to enjoy, and all the anxiety about that, but also perhaps all the hope of something else. Then you can take them across the ocean and perhaps have a violent storm in your drama, like the opening scene in The Tempest or something. And then you can get them as far as New York and get them looking out this time towards New York, towards the future, not the past. And you can again say, I wonder what's in their minds now. And then the same thing, by now they're used to using this technique of thought bubbles and they will tell you exactly what these Irish people, these new immigrants into the USA would be hoping for as they landed in New York. Yes, and I could remember my first years at Stantonbury as a young teacher and often finding myself going into a room and I'd, I'd don a white coat to be a, a rather belligerent scientist making, making the case for nuclear power. Or I'd, I'd be an overseer in a, in a factory walking around and the students knew the game. They knew that what you were about to do when you went into role was something that teachers did at that school. You just simply adopt a different voice. You take on a, a different posture and instantly they're off and you're playing the role of the, you're both the teacher and the actor in the classroom with the students, directing them in whatever enterprise you were trying to find out. Yeah, that, that notion of teacher in role was one of the major gifts that Dorothy Hethcote gave to the teaching profession. Um, because as teacher in role, you, you don't disturb the progress of the drama as it's developing with the whole cast, with the whole class, I should say, and, and all the children having an equal opportunity to contribute to the way that drama goes. But the teacher in the role that she or he adopts can gently maneuver the drama into very productive grounds as far as opportunities for learning from the experience can, can take place. Yes, before I, mean, before I joined Stantonbury, I remember I did a year's teaching in, in the United States and I was in a school in Oregon, a little very straightforward American high school. And one day I thought, well, I'll, I'll give, because I, 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 I knew of these ideas, I knew of Dorothy Hathcote, so I'm going to give this a go. So with my best South African accent, I came into the classroom one day and convinced the kids that I was from South Africa and it was during the height of apartheid and I was making the most outrageous remarks about the system in South Africa and why it was simply great and um, got the kids wound up tremendously. And I don't think they'd ever <coughs> quite experienced anything quite like it. It was, they were both baffled and astonished at the same time. Quite a lot were baffled, but at the end of the class, one student said to me, you know, that, that was great, thanks for that. They, they, they'd not done that before. Yeah. And no. sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. No, that, that was new. Um, and because it was happening as a subject drama was happening in the comprehensive schools, it was a major reason, well, it was one of several reasons why I left my first job as an English teacher in a boys' grammar school. I mean, in that job, I just fresh from Oxford and and I took on this role and um, Brian Stone was my role model. So I did, took on the school plays. I did um, Comedy of Errors and and I did, Volpone with these these students, and um, the um, the headmaster, I dare say, was both a snob and a philistine. Um, in the middle of um, Volpone, I suddenly got a note from the headmaster saying, um, "Rehearsals shall cease forthwith." <laughs> and it turned out that he'd spoken to somebody in town um, and heard who and heard from them. Um, that one scene in um, uh, Volpone was an attempted rape. So rehearsals had to cease forthwith. Now, it was no good trying to explain to him 
that um, Ben Johnson had this wonderful capacity for satire. He could expose the viciousness of an addiction to material wealth and greed, and he could expose the, the folly of um, chasing after um, wealth. But this was a situation where a man, a character, had offered his wife to this voluptuary Volponi who was pretending to be dying and in the hope of inheriting his wealth, he'd offered him his wife and um, then left her alone with him in the bedroom. So, of course, as soon as he left, Volponi leaps out of bed and, and uh, attempts to um, uh, embrace this man's wife. So um, rehearsals had had to cease forthwith. But um, the way round it was to appeal to his snobbery. So I phoned every public school in the country, uh, Eton, yeah, Eton um, um, Charterhouse and Harrow and places like that, and found out how many of them had allowed Volponi to enter the sacred precincts of their schools <laughs> and was able to give him a list. And so he relented and we were able to continue. But then again, um, his philistinism it's interesting when he i think he only gave me my job because i was from oxford and and such that appealed to his snobbery but he told me then that um when he was a physics teacher at came a physics student at cambridge um the virile physics students uh, used to chase down the effete english students who wore pink scented underwear that was his phrase and hurl them into the river cam and he was very proud of this so he's a complete philistine and so when he came into the um performance space and saw the set we designed for volponi which was a beautiful um naked um woman a, a nude woman um painted in color on the back of this voluptuous bedroom um he said rehearsals must cease forthwith and so the only way around that around that was to get a local man called Wilensky, who was the um, Times newspaper's art critic, as I remember it. And um, so got him into the room with the headmaster to look at this wonderful painting. And Wilensky declared that there is a difference between pornography and art. And this is not pornography. This is very, very fine art. And it's a wonderful thing for students and teachers and um, parents and members of the community to share delight in when they come to watch this play. So we were able to complete the rehearsals and do Volponia. Absolutely. So art is art and that's fine. <laughs> so but, nudes in an art gallery are art, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> but, but you see, the, um, I wasn't just doing plays there. Whenever I could, I was taking um, my classes out of the classroom into the orchard um, where there was space to run freely around and do drama. And the kids enjoyed that so much and it made such a difference to their motivation for coming to school that I realised that if there are drama jobs anywhere, um, then that's what I wanted um, to move into. And of course, they were in the comprehensive schools, which were also co-educational. And I looked around for a drama job in a co-ed school and there was a new school in um, Shropshire called the Grove School, which was um, uh, a combination of a very famous old grammar school, which was, they were very proud of the fact that Clive of India had gone there, had all those kinds of traditions and, and a secondary modern school. And the job was to, um, uh, um, teach the, the job of the school was to combine those two um, two staff rooms mm. into one that could be um, the leaders of this wonderful new comprehensive school. And I thought that the way that drama could exert its power for good on this situation was to do Hamlet with the staff. And I persuaded the like the the head of English from the grammar school played Polonius, the head of um, I got a Hamlet from uh, the the community. She, he was the um, the husband of our dance teacher, and the secondary modern school woodwork teacher and metalwork teacher created a fabulous set, 
and um, the art teacher from the um, secondary modern school created all the costumes and, and the design. And and we got I got a sixth form girl to play Ophelia. It was a lovely combination of students, teachers, and and the community in creating a major play like Hamlet, which just forged a unity between all these people. And I don't think we ever looked back from that. They knew the value of drama within this new school, and that was what I was there to provide the students with. And um, and they all felt comfortable with it and at one with it. It's fascinating, isn't it? And I think that that joint enterprise, that that engaging the entire school, building a new school, and of course you went on to do the do something similar, attempt something similar uh, at a new town. I did indeed. I mean, it, it was when after uh, various other experiences, I'd been headhunted and gone to train teachers at North Bucks College of. Uh, education which was situated in Bletchley Park and had also spent a few years in America exploring the notion of how much learning can take place through direct experience. Um, but um, with all that behind me, um, I came back to England and took a job of Director of Theatre and Drama at Stantonbury Campus, which again was a brand new undertaking. Um, uh, in in a, a, a city that in itself was a brand new undertaking. As I said, we had this uh, population of 40,000 people in four towns, 13 villages, um, and we had this influx of newcomers um, from all over the country. And somehow we had to breathe a community spirit into this um, new city. And from the base of Stantonbury campus, it was possible to do that through drama. So the first thing I did with the teachers at Stantonbury was to put on a production of John Whiting's Penny for a Song. And um, there in the first term, all these students, who again had come from many, many different schools and many different places, they were able to witness their teachers um, embracing the, the idea of drama as an important thing to be doing. And again, we never looked back. And of course, that and, and it was. Uh, we'll, we've got it actually. It's coming up now to the halfway mark for us. I'm going to play the news, and when we come back after the news, I'd like to talk a little bit about the way in which, for me, coming to Stantonbury, opening up textbooks, and there weren't textbooks; they were written by the staff, and coming across characters like Albert French, and realizing that the drama in the English classroom and in the history classroom that we were doing, going into roles and that stuff. And the textbooks we were using were derived from the local community and experiences of the local community. So yeah. in a minute, everyone, if you'd like to join us, please message or you can, you can contact us through the Podbean app and we'll take a short break for the news. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. <coughs> It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and well-being in school. Half. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at etc. Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
following the death of Queen Elizabeth II, the Department for Education has issued guidance for schools. The period of national mourning will continue until the state funeral, but the guidance makes it clear that schools should remain open during this time. Ofsted reports are paused, but inspections will go ahead. The update suggests that schools may want to consider conducting special activities, holding assemblies or adapting lessons to commemorate the life of Her Majesty. Whilst no official date has yet been set for the state funeral, many media outlets are suggesting Monday, September the 19th as a possible date. There is also speculation around whether the state funeral proceedings would be classed as a public holiday, something which would affect schools opening. Schools and other education settings across all four of the home nations have been involved in many events recognising the late Queen's 70 years of service to the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, with many media outlets carrying details of how her passing has been acknowledged by young people across all areas. England's Secretary of State for Education, Kit Malthouse, acknowledged Her Majesty's devotion to public service. Northern Ireland's Michelle McKilveen referred to Her Majesty as a champion of education and an impeccable role model for children and young people, and someone who will be missed immeasurably. The last public appearance of the Queen was on Tuesday the 6th of September, when she appointed Liz Truss as Prime Minister. The new Prime Minister made Cabinet announcements, including the appointment of Kit Malthouse as Secretary of State for Education. Mr Malthouse replaces James Cleverley in a year that has seen many ministers take up and then leave the role. Mr Malthouse was first elected in 2015 and is the MP for North West Hampshire. His previous experience has been with the Home Office and the Ministry of Justice. He studied politics and economics <coughs> at Newcastle University and is a qualified chartered accountant. Mr Malthouse is married and has three children. After a year of turmoil, Mr Malthouse is likely to need to promote stability as quickly as possible within his department while also taking steps to address the school funding crisis and issues brought about by further concerns around the cost of living. This has been Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week, if you haven't already gone, it's time to return to school. So, what tech advice do I have for you? This episode is aimed more at teachers newer to the profession, but there may also be something for those with more experience here too. Here are my top tips for returning to or starting a new school. First up, put your name on your power lead especially if your school uses the same laptops for lots of teachers. It's so easy to leave your power lead behind and then find it's been taken by someone thinking it's theirs. When moving between rooms, always close your laptop lid and remove power leads and USB drives. This can be a pain, but impact on a USB drive sticking out while in transit can stop the port working. Same goes for a power port. Modern computers are incredibly tricky to fix if these ports are damaged, and therefore that will be the end of your laptop. If you're using USB drives, start moving into the cloud. If your school hasn't already banned them, they will be considering it due to the increased risk of viruses posed by using them. Always start your information management system as soon as you arrive. This is the software you take your register on. Don't leave it until it's time to take the register. This software updates regularly and can sometimes take a while, especially after a break when technicians have had the time to maintain your school system. Finally, one of my favourite shortcuts. If you don't know this, feel free to let me know I've changed your life. If you organise your internet bookmarks into folders, you can right-click on the folder and select Open All. This will open all of the web pages you'll be using in a lesson, saving you time and also making sure everything is loaded and ready to go. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. As we return to work, why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022, follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods. And that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And welcome back to uh, the Friday break with John Gibbs and my guest Roy Nevitt. We were talking before the news on the Two Minute Tech about drama in the classroom. And I was remembering coming to Stanton, we opening the textbooks and coming across Albert French. And Albert French was... A, a, an actual living human being, as it were, in the textbooks in front of students that you could respond to in class. So it was a way in which the living archive was feeding into, into this classroom. And then you could use that as a jumping off point to drama to study history. Indeed. I mean, to, to, this, 
for me, everything is all of a piece. I mean, whether you're doing drama in the classroom, which is at the core of um, uh, the importance of, of, of drama and education, or whether you're extending it to putting on plays like um, the classic plays of Brecht or um, Shakespeare or uh, Chekhov, um, which are on the theatre studies A-level um, curriculum, whether you're doing that with your sixth formers, um, or whether you're extending further into um, the community and engaging a community as a whole in the creation of a theatre company with a hundred actors at various times. It's all of a piece because the, the young people can be part of it and so can their teachers, so can their parents, so can their neighbours. They can all be part of the same enterprise. And, um, and, and you can apply that to anything like, for example, um, the documentary plays, which I think the Albert French comment is going to lead me into now. Um, the thing about documentary plays is that I first met them in Stoke-on-Trent, when I was, which was the nearest, had the nearest theatre to where I was teaching in Shropshire, and a, a great theatre director called Peter Cheeseman, who was doing these local musical documentary plays with um, professional actors. And I always thought, having experienced them, the Staffordshire Rebels, the Naughty, things like that, um, that I could use that same approach, but engage it instead with um, young people in schools and um, amateurs around us and teachers and so on. And we could all work together on delving into um, history and transmuting that documentation from history into great theatre or great drama. So, for example, the, f the first attempt I made at this at Stantonbury was on a subject called the Burston School Strike. Now, a man called Bert Edwards had researched the Burston School Strike, which was a real event that happened between 1913. And it, it, um, it, uh, there was a, an appalling um, act of cruelty, really, by the governors of the school in Burston, where they sacked the teachers because they were basically spending too much money putting logs on the fire in winter, buying boots for the children so they could walk, not barefoot, but in, within footwear to the school. And the, the farmers, the church and the landowners had no compunction but to sack them for this. Now, that provoked a, a, a strike that lasted no until 1937. It was the longest strike in British history, and it's still celebrated to this day by trade unionists in events at Burston. So the, Bert Edwards introduced me to the actual strikers in Burston's village. And I took my children, my, my students from Stantonbury, who'd been working with me on the subject of Burston in drama lessons, just um, exploring through the medium of drama this tremendously exciting thing where, for example, this girl, when told that her teachers were sacked, had walked in front of the class and written on the blackboard, we are going on strike tomorrow. And then the following day, um, when they, they, the whole school population turned up at the school um, and the police were there to try and force them in, they just took out their banners and marched around the village singing Red Flag. And that's... <laughs> and, the the teachers themselves and and the parents um in defiance of the authorities built a strike school on the village green as the alternative to the state school which had this cruelty and stupidity associated with it and that school lasted as i say till 1937 now the drama it made fantastic drama in the classroom but it also developed into a fantastic play where the students um, who'd gone with me to Burston to meet the actual strikers could play them as they were when they were children on strike. And the rest of the adults in our Stanford Campus Drama Group could play the adults, the vicar and the farmers and the parents and so on. So having done had such a success with the Burston School Strike as a community play, and we called it a documentary play, um, 
the Development Corporation in Milton Keynes commissioned me to do a local musical documentary play. And so we researched our locality and using uh, Peter Cheeseman as a consultant um, on the drama side of things, and Ewan McColl and Peggy Seeger as the consultants on the use of folk song media um, within the songs for the play and the music for the play, um, we identified 1835 to 1860 as a very potent subject matter. We had many, many files in the great line on the shelves of documents that we collected about the history of our local area. But this section of the collection, which dealt with the coming of the railway to what is now Milton Keynes, actually to the town of Wolverton, um, was an exact parallel experience with what we were experiencing at that time in the 1970s uh, uh, mm. of, of the um, building of the new city of Milton Keynes. So we were able to, um, I, I used my commission fee to pay a, um, an assistant to go and fetch primary source material, because that was our discipline. We would only ever use that for the sake of getting absolute authenticity in the words that actors were going to speak. Um, it would go to the House of Lords Record Office or the House of um, the, 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 the Trans British Transport Records Office or Bodleian Library or somewhere, and she would come back with the primary source material. And that became the substance for um, transmutation into the theatre form. And we did this play called All Change. Now, the, the company and, and the population so wanted more of these local documentaries that we looked again. In fact, there was a, a national conference at Stanbury campus in the theatre called um, <clears throat> Theatre of Fact, which was an exploration of the nature of documentary theatre over a weekend. And Peter came and Philip Donnell and the great documentary film artists came and various um, Charles Parker, who'd done with Ewan and Peggy, the radio ballads. They were all lead speakers in this. My job in that was to um, demonstrate to the all the people who come there, theatre theater people, teachers and so on, exactly how you transmute documents into drama. And my colleague, Roger Kitchen, who with Maggie and me had helped create Living Archive, had a collection of letters that he'd found at the bottom of a, <clears throat> a box of secondhand books. They were written by a 16-year-old boy from Wolverton, where we lived, um, um, at the time from when he volunteered to join the First World War to the moment that he was shot by a machine gun um, a few days before his 17th birthday. Now, these letters are what Paul, uh, what John just mentioned earlier. Um, I use those letters as the material to demonstrate how you can transmute, transmute um, primary source material into drama. And coming out of that experience, I realized we had a play. So we wrote this play. I wrote this play called Your Loving Brother Albert. And I mean, it had. Um, members of the public in it, it had teachers in it and had students in it. And um, it went much further than that because um, 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 we created a, a professional theatre company called Theatre of Fact that was de dedicated to taking plays and workshops into schools all over the country um, and um, they would take subjects that were controversial. Now, we started with um, uh, really finding our feet with using the First World War material. So we were able to explore through the workshops what the experience was of, um, of being in the First World War. We'd had tremendous load of interviews with a great old man called Horton Mundy, 
who had vivid recall of the First World War, and here's the part he played in it. He was three times wounded and twice a prisoner of war. And he, he, he spoke in a language which is utterly authentic. We recorded him. We made a whole play called Days of Pride, which is based on Horton Mundy's memories and the other memories we could collect of other people in the community who had experienced the First World War. So... Wait, wait, and Stantonbury provided the kind of place at the time when you could explore some of these things. There were some very unique things about the school in those days. There was things, things called day 10 and things called um, or the activity days at the end of the year. Yes, that's right. Which I mean, gave you the space to take students and do, right. do things. We had a day 10 when we could choose to do whatever we wanted with our students or they could choose to ask us to do something. And But the point about our day 10 on a Friday every 10th day was that it could extend into the whole weekend. And the point about the week 10 at the end of the school year was that it, it could extend into the whole of the summer holidays. So for example, um, Albert French, I mean, Horton Mundy, the, the, the blind soldier who, the, the soldier who became blind in his old age had this vivid memory. He gave us um, in, the, he gave us the all chain, the, um, Days of Pride community play, but he also gave us this character who could meet the young people when we went into schools to do workshops with them. And um, he could just play a kind of teacher in role um, mode of behavior where, for example, surrounded by posters of the First World War, propaganda posters, he could say, I'm blind, I can't see any of those. What do they say? And the kids would say, well, they're saying, you know, um, where were you in the First World War, Daddy, and so on, things like that. And, and so, oh, yeah, and he'd listen to them and they'd be feeding back to him what the whole business of propaganda was. And then um, he, he didn't, he'd say that some of his friends have been shot as cowards by his their own men and um we the, the, the actors would set up a a scene where um some of the students were given rifles and and um, a man was tied to a one of them was tied to a stick and um there was the situation do they shoot him or not and the, the, the victim would be saying, I'm not a coward. I was yeah. just frightened. I was just confused. And, and then the officers would be saying, you have to shoot them. Okay. And this kind of controversial material was something that theatre and education could do. And do you think, Roy, that drama and theatre and education can do things other, in a way, absolutely. Confront, confront difficult subjects, difficult and profound subjects in a way that is important in school. Well, that's what Theatre of Fact did over its seven-year history. It found subjects like rape and disability, Northern Ireland, when all the troubles were happening. And you could both do workshops on those subjects, exploring them. If you are professional, trained teacher actors going into schools to do that, in a way that um, teachers on their own in a classroom might find themselves hesitant to... Or, or unable to tackle. And um, um, <clears throat> that, that lasted seven years and only came to an end because Buckinghamshire was a very conservative county that even though it was getting about £100,000 a year in grant money from the Arts Council, they didn't see the value of it and wouldn't make, put in their minute contribution, which is all it needed for the Arts Council to continue funding it. Yeah. We, we mentioned earlier the, the Ken Robinson report, 1999, and that way in which every few years schools, or rather governments, discover the power of creativity and then forget it again almost immediately. The great Ken Robinson, whom we lost to the, the Getty organisation in Los Angeles because he was so disillusioned when instead of implementing the brilliant research and ideas that he had in his creativity thesis, um, the government buried it yeah. and it died without trace. Yes, and, and, and it's the, the discovery of creativity as a cornerstone of what Britain does best. And yet, you, if you're going to do that best, you need to do it in schools, you need to do it in workshops, you need to, you need to have students coming through, not just as actors and as pro theatre professionals, but also as g gaining the sort of skills that 
and the insights that drama can provide to, to think to think creatively. That's a very profound point. I mean, yeah, and you need to put money behind it. Yeah, indeed. And and, and when that is done, um, then young people can graduate from school and go into the world with a tremendous increase in self-confidence, in knowledge, in empathy. They've had their emotions educated um, and um, their emotional intelligence developed as well as their physicality in terms of voice training and the good use of voice and and uh, physical training the good use of the body when they're exploring a character who might be very different from themselves i mean we're saying something very ancient about theater the power of theater all the way back to the greeks and catharsis and so on but we're also saying something about that that can be done in schools and that's the way you can teach geography and you can teach history and you can teach english as well through through that drama Indeed. Uh, and you, you had an experience, you went to Stratford-on-Avon, you saw a recent production. I know that's, that's not in school, it's a theatre experience you had, but it, it reveals the power of drama. No, no, I mean, uh, as old as I am, I can still have my mind opened to a new understanding of the world around me um, by um, theatre, however old it is, like Shakespeare, but if it's in the hands of creative uh, theatre practitioners like you get at the RSC, it can just give you insights that help you understand what, what's wrong with the world we're living in now. For example, Richard III, I went to a couple of weeks ago, and I remembered Olivia playing it and this non-disabled actor using great acting skills to impersonate a disabled king. Um, uh, and I remembered, of course, Anthony Sher with his crutches and his, he, that's his way of showing disabilities on crutches. But he, but he also shows his immense energy and dynamism by being able to leap across the huge stage in a couple of giant strides using his crutches as levers. Well, this production had Arthur Hughes play, uh, cast as um, Richard, and he is a disabled actor. He doesn't have to use any artifice at all. Um, his um, his impairment is visible to you. He has a, a, an arm that's dis- disabled. And um, so he can play the part naturalistically. It comes natural to him to be disabled. Um, and it does an interesting thing. The consequence of that is the focus comes off the actor doing that stuff onto the people around him. And suddenly you realise these people who, who've abused him and made him paranoid by abusing him in the name of his disability are the same people who through greed or cowardice or viciousness or some other nasty human motivation have wanted to put this man in power. And they are as responsible as the people who, the cities of London who swallowed whole his hypocritical pretense to be a religious man and allowed him to become their king and give him all that power. And, and it, you come out of that um, uh, play, um, the first half I'm talking about at the moment, um, just with a tre- tremendous insight into how we get people like Trump and Bolsonaro and um, uh, Putin in positions of power to do harm to the rest of us. Now, you can't just have bleak, um, bleak experiences of of, of, um, uh, of what's bad in the world with its evil people. Um, you need you need some hope. And the second half of this production showed all the victims um, uh, of Richard's cruelty and murderous instincts. Um, who who appear as ghosts dressed in white to haunt him on the eve of uh, the Battle of Bosworth Field. But they, on, on the morning of the battle, they these actors choreographed themselves into the form of a giant horse and they carry Richard into the battle um, and dump him on the ground when they get there. And there he is shouting, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, while the actors form themselves into another great white horse. And on, on the back of that, the Earl of Richmond rides Richmond rides to, to victory and to uh, a new 
uh, hope for the for the country of England. Well, we in the times we live in now, and we look at Trump and we look at Putin, and we we need some some hope, some um, vicarious experience of poetic justice, where the victims of the cruelty can become the instruments of the downfall of the tyrants. Well, that's a lovely thought, Roy. Can you just tell us a moment about your experience of going to Stratford with your English, was it your English teacher who took you there? Yeah, you I mean, saw every, a colossal number of plays in a short period of time. Every summer we'd see seven or six or seven uh, Shakespeare plays and um, talk about them with our teachers because there were always four or five English teachers there camping with us. We'd talk about the plays the following day. Now, I mean, it's, it's interesting that... Um, I don't think I've already said this. I'm not sure if I've already said this about Schofield. Oh yeah, we, you mentioned yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but but um, uh, the the uh, the business of um, creating theatre of every kind within a school seems to me beyond limits in its scope. Yeah. You can have drama in the classroom which as we did at Stansbury, we think is the right of every student to have. Um, you can have plays done by the sixth formers um, as, as part of their um, uh, theatre studies curriculum. You can have community theatre, which could do any number of plays and any number of theatre activities, including the documentaries, which might or might not be local documentaries. And um, I mean, in the end, we got a company of students combined with teachers, combined with members of the community that was so hungry to do more work on the scale of the large scale documentaries, but going beyond that, that, that we, we were able to take on um, the, the mysteries as developed by Bill Bryden and um, uh, Bill Dudley at the National Theatre in the Cottesloe. Um, we, we recreated um, their wonderful productions in, in Milton Keynes in Stanterbury Theatre. The Nativity at Christmas time, the Passion at Easter time, and Doomsday in, in the November, the autumn that followed. And, and that, that wasn't enough. They wanted Keith Dewhurst's Lark Rise and Candleford, which we kind of cheekily claimed as local because Lark Rise, the the, the village was only a few miles away from where we were in, in Milton Keynes. And then, of course, we culminated it with a massive production over 30 nights of um, Nicholas Nickleby, where we did um, David Edgar's RSC version of Nicholas Nickleby. Um, um, in, in, we did it in um, four parts, I think, whereas... Um, He'd originally done it in three. So David Edgar had willingly written new text for us so that we could link the new element in. And um, Roy, you're making, you're, you're making me and I think anyone listening to this want to immediately get involved in theatre and drama and acting again. And uh, I think, because we're in the last few minutes now, and although, uh, and then you, you just said something about the power of drama in, in relation to humour. Yeah, I mean, we all need to have a laugh and you, 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 there's nothing better than a great comedy um, to, to, um, to bring laughter into people's lives. I mean, I, I'll never forget doing Plautus's The Comedy of, uh, sorry, Plautus's The Pot of Gold and, and Molière's plays and so on with, with my group. And, and just the, the laughter that, that, that happened um, um, through rehearsals and and then with the audience was was just so so healthy and so wonderful. But I mean, I just recently watched again um, uh, Stoppard's um, Shakespeare in Love, and I was watching poor old Shakespeare who's got writer's block going to this alchemist who's like the the old time uh, psychotherapist and explaining his symptoms, which are his quill is broken, his creative juices have dried up and the delight on Anthony Cher's face as he read into these symptoms and saw what was the problem and what was the cure. The guy needed to fall in love yes. again. And of course, you just laugh with your belly, with your heart, with your whole body, you laugh. And um, 
and you know that's what another aspect of the power of drama it can move you to tears it can make you laugh out loud well roy thank you that is what we need right now and that has been an absolute delight to talk to you today roy i hope you'll come back and be a guest of mine again on my friday break time that brings us to an end i've enjoyed so much exploring that with you roy and uh thank you for being our guest this week well it was a pleasure to be with you You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.